We come to our final look at the, uh, the 1904-1905 uh, Welsh Revival. We looked at what happened in our first study in the lead-up to the 1904-05 Revival, and then yesterday we looked at generally what happened, and I kind of felt very frustrated because we looked at one or two places, but what I described was happening all over the Principality. We come in our final sort of session to look at, well, what was it all about? And how can we assess it? And, and what benefit is it to us in, in the 21st century? You need to understand this. Gullibility is not one segment of the fruit of the Spirit. I come across many people who are incredibly gullible. And if you ask a question, they go, oh, you're critical. You're critical. Do you know, over 45 times in the Bible, we are told to worship God with our mind. We are to think. And you know something? It's only heresy that cannot cope with questions. Truth loves questions. And God loves to ask questions, and he loves us to ask him questions. You go through the book of Job. There are over 139 questions in Job, where, where, where Job is asking questions, and also God is asking questions. Uh, and even the Lord Jesus, how about this on Calvary? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very powerful, isn't it, indeed? So there's nothing wrong in, in, in coming to the 1904-05 revival and saying, Lord, I want to try and understand this. Do you mind if I ask a few questions? And so we're going to look at five things, and we'll just fly through these because there is so much to say. And the last one will be incredibly small, and it could be a study in and of itself. The first is the fruit. What fruit was left after the 1904-05 revival? Well, lots of kind of interesting segments of fruit that we can chew on. The first is this. Coal production in Wales rapidly increased. Now, you didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> Think, where, where's that come from? Never read that in my books. Why is that? Because you know that when you are cast down and when you have no focus in life, you live for the weekend. And that's what most people do in this country. We live in a holiday culture. In fact, I would just say, if I can just say this as a preacher, there are two things that are attacking the heart of the church. One is holidayism and the other is familyism. And when you're a pastor, it's very difficult. You're fighting these things all the time. You know, people are just having so many holidays these days. And when we were a lot younger, we had probably a fortnight's holiday and that was it. These days, we live in a holiday culture where people are perpetually away because they retire early and so on. We don't even go down that road. And uh, so we kind of live in a leisure society. But when people have been sort of regenerated by the Holy Spirit, it gives them a fresh understanding of, I'm doing this not for the coal manager, not even for myself, I'm doing this for the glory of God. And so coal production rapidly increased. And when, when Jesus puts a song in your heart, it gives you a new attitude to work. And uh, you've heard me speak about Alexander McLaren before. He was the minister at Union Chapel Street in, in Manchester. Do you know, he, he studied at home as I study at home. He never owned a pair of slippers in his life. Why is that? He said, well, if my people go to work wearing boots, I'm going to go into the study to get on my knees wearing a pair of boots. I'm going to work. Uh, and I know ministers who kind of slop around in their slippers all day, and then they have a coffee in Starbucks with a few Christian books around them, and they think that is studying the word of God and meeting the Lord. It is a joke. Uh, and, you know, if, if our people are working hard, we in the Christian world should be working hard. Uh, because... It gives us that new energy to serve the Lord. So coal production went up. Second, the pit disputes were sorted out. Uh, and I mentioned that big one uh, well, with the quarries in Bethesda, 
which was the most famous, but lots of pit disputes. You know, where, where two or three are gathered together, there you'll have trouble. You mean that's in the book of Hezekiah, chapter 3, verse 9. And uh, wherever you have people, you'll have trouble. Uh, and you'll find it also in the Christian church. Uh, and when the Holy Spirit began to move in the 1904 revival, even pit disputes were sorted out. Also, pit ponies got confused. Listen to this paragraph that comes from the Daily News. The worst class of workers in the colliery is the haulier, who has the charge of the poor horses doomed to perpetual underground darkness. These men are a class of their own. They are known for their profanity, their cruelty. But now the change is so marked that the poor bewildered horses do not know what to make of it. Accustomed to words of command, every one of which was either a curse or an obscenity, they hardly know how to obey the request now couched in quiet and gentle phrases. <laughs> John Wesley said, when a man is converted, even his dog will know it. That's great theology, isn't it, really? Do you know the things you learned at this conference? It's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Also, there's a great reduction in crime. Lots of exaggeration has been made over this about judges having white gloves given to them. It's one of those kind of things that goes round. It's really hard to find that being uh, substantiated. But we do know there was a huge drop in crime. And surely when the Lord Jesus is at work in your heart, you can't start thieving, can you really? You can't start pinching things. And a lot of that kind of disappeared. Also, the breweries struggled And many pubs closed down. And it was pretty interesting when some landlords got converted. What do you do when you're a landlord and you're working in the beer trade and you get converted? But you see what alcohol does to people. And so some pubs were turned into chapels. And and landlords said, I no longer carry on in this profession. How interesting. How would that go down in today's society? You know, I, I don't drink alcohol. I've never taken it in my life. But some nasty members have slipped in a bit of sherry into a church trifle tea and uh, <laughs> took me a week to recover. <laughs> but uh, people say, oh, I'd long for the Holy Spirit to move. I wonder if the Holy Spirit moved, whether some of the stuff that we condone in our church will be condoned and would go out the window. And uh, fascinating. So, so quite a number of pubs closed down and... and Landlords sort of lost their jobs. And it's interesting that uh, when this happens, sometimes things that we think, they're not so much sinful, but they're questionable, they go out the window. And we all have things in our lives, don't we? They're not, they're not sinful, but maybe they're questionable. And, and, and when the Spirit comes, it's time they went, really, because they're clogging up your life. Also, it affected rugby. Some rugby teams, every member of the team was converted. And the team said, why are, we, why are we just doing this? We've got other things to do with our lives. And you know how the Welsh love rugby? They love it. You mean, and uh, my wife was brought up living next door to uh, Neil Jenkins, the, the big kicker, you know. And uh, so everyone, oh, Neil Jenkins comes from the village and we have signed, we used to get signed photographs to Neil and hand them out to people. So, oh, Neil's a neighbour. And if you ever watch Wales playing rugby these days, he's the man who now brings on the water for the kickers. You know, he's still there. And uh, so rugby is huge in, in Wales. They had an international match during the 1904 Old Family Revival. 4,000 turned up. 
4,000. Why? Because people lost interest and said there are other things to concentrate on. And uh, while maybe shopping is, am I allowed to say this, probably the, the god of many women in our country, sport is the god of many men in our country. In fact, we have one radio station, Five Live, which is just committed to that idol all the time, 24-7. Also, people began paying their debts. People began hanging back diplomas that they cheated on and going back to colleges and universities to say, I I cheated in my exams, I'm sorry, therefore I've got this under false pretense, I'm handing back my degree, I'm handing back my qualification. And uh, by the way, uh, I've owed money for a very long time, you can have it back. See, when the Holy Spirit really works, it gets very, very practical. Also, many theatres and shows closed down. A theatre company was operating in Cardiff when the revival broke out and suddenly all the theatres became empty and they cut their losses and went back to London as quick as possible, saying the longer we're here we're going to lose money. And so all that evaporated. Some good stuff is that the British and Foreign Bible Society had a wonderful year because everyone wanted to buy a Bible, which is pretty reassuring, isn't it, really? Uh, And one of the signs that the Holy Spirit is working is the Holy Spirit always drives you into the Word of God. Okay, I could not care how high a person jumps. The question is this, how straight do they walk? And I don't mind if you want to fall over on the floor before the Lord. That is fine. I find that in the Bible. But it's what you like when you get up. And uh, so we found, Bishop of Foreign Bible said he couldn't kind of produce Bibles fast enough to get Bibles out into people's hands because they wanted to read the Word of God. And how about this? Sunday became a transformed day. When I went to South Wales in 1981, I was right at the end of all this stuff. And uh, I used to sometimes catch the train going up the Ronda Valley to, to go and preach on a Sunday morning. The train I caught was called, traditionally, the preacher's train. Because so many people used to get on the train, preachers, going up the valley to preach. And they used to kind of swap notes and, uh, you know, what are you preaching on and what are you preaching on? Just on a, a totally different line altogether. Southport was, was also a big center of Jews. This has got nothing to do with the revival, but just an interesting little story. Uh, and there were lots of Jews who, who lived in Southport who worked in Manchester. They used to travel to Manchester, Manchester every day on the train, and the train that they caught was known as the Kosher Express. <laughs> okay, well, this wasn't the Kosher Express. This was the preacher's train. And... Uh, I remember, I remember stopping uh, up in the valleys one, one Sunday, you know, preaching morning and evening and stopping in between with a the family. There was an old man there, and uh, he, he wasn't sort of part of the revival in the sense that he was there, but his parents were, but he lived in the aftermath of it. And he said to me, David, when I was growing up, the busiest day of the week in this town was Sunday. Because people were back from the mines. You know, they'd come up from the city. So everyone was living at home. And he said, Sunday, everyone was out going to different chapels. He said, it was the busiest day of the week. And Sunday was was totally transformed. Wow. I remember preaching in a place called Tom Pentra. And a huge barn of a place. There were ten of us. It could it could have held easily one and a half thousand people. Uh, and and even, even though there were ten of us, there were three on the back row. <laughs> believe it and then with Doris on the piano and she was as blind as a bat 
And after every verse, you go, is that it? No, another verse. Is that it? No, another verse, Doris. And you kind of look back and think, what an embarrassment to the kingdom of God. And uh, that was in the morning. And I went to another church in Tom Pentry. And I stopped with a man and he said, you know, I've lived here all my life. And he said, uh, when Dr. Lloyd-Jones was, was down in Bethlehem Sandfields, he came here every year. And he said, the place was packed out. He said, people used to queue to go in. And he said, one evening he preached so powerfully. And then at the close of his message, the chairman stood up and said, well, that was wonderful. He said, but we don't get that on Sunday around here. And bemoaned the state of the church. Well, Lloyd-Jones was up. And you can imagine classic Lloyd-Jones style. And this man said, you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. And he said, well, my dear friend, it's felt like you that emptied the place. Because you've got nothing to say. That's why they're not coming. You're not preaching the gospel. He said he almost preached a second sermon. He said it was wonderful. He didn't come again. But you know, Sunday was a totally transformed day. And I said in our, in our first kind of talk together, really 100,000 is, is over the top. About 80,000 people professed faith in Christ in, in the 1904 revival. So that's kind of some of the fruit. There's a lot more fruit to talk about. Secondly, what were the characteristics of that revival? What were the characteristics? Uh, number one, it was a singing revival. Okay, there's uh, no getting away from it. It was a singing revival, and, and a huge percentage of every meeting was, was taken up with singing. Where did they get their hymns from? Two places. Number one, they got them from the 18th century revival, and also the 1859 revival, and if you look at those hymns, and I'm fortunate my wife translates a lot of these things for me, a lot of them are Calvary-based. Calvary-based. And uh, you kind of, you sometimes read things or hear things, you go, oh, I wish I could, I wish I could tell people what this really means. It's so, so powerful. There's a beautiful, beautiful Welsh hymn written by a Welsh poet, and uh, he was married with four children. And uh, his wife died and three of the children. And, and, and the hymn is oh, it's, it's poetry. And he says, I woke up and leant on my family. But by lunchtime, the family had gone. And so I leant on my friends. But by mid-afternoon, they had gone. Until in the end, by the end of the day, the only one I could lean on was him who shed his blood for me at Calvary. Oof. Powerful stuff. Great stuff. And uh, so the song sang incredibly strong and evocative hymns. They also had some of Moody's hymns, which had been kind of translated into, into Welsh. Uh, and one or two Welsh poets were very gifted at doing that. And you know that hymn by William Rees, you know, Here is Love Vast as an Ocean. Okay, that was written before the revival, but that was known as the revival hymn. And if you have a hymn book that has four verses to that hymn, it's a hoax. Okay, and people tag on verses. He only wrote two. And again, pure theology, isn't it? And what is interesting, it's not a Welsh tune, it comes from America. Right, written by Robert Lowry. Another characteristic is that Evan Roberts was not in favor of healing meetings. He believed in healing, but he said it's a distraction to what is going on. Likewise, he was not in favor of speaking in tongues, although he believed 
that an outpouring of the Holy Spirit can sometimes release the gifts of the Spirit and even speaking in tongues. And so he, he didn't emphasize healing and he didn't emphasize the speaking in tongues. But there was evidence of that in the 1904 or 5 revival. A little later on, it reared its head after the revival because some of the people who came out of the 1904 or 5 revival were the Jeffrey brothers. Also, Daniel Williams, who founded the Apostolic Church, if you know of a man called Ian McPherson, Scottish preacher, great man of God, uh, got a few cassettes of him preaching, very powerful preacher. And I think I've told before, I have a cassette of uh, Ian McPherson preaching, and he's halfway through a sermon, and he says, there's no unction here, let's go home. Wow. That's, that's brave, isn't it? You try that on Sunday. But don't do it when England are playing Wales, otherwise Fort may think you've got another motive. <laughs> yeah, he just said, I just, he said, there's no unction here, let's just go home. So, so, so these kind of Pentecostal movements came out of the 1904 or 5 revival, I'll mention that. R.B. Jones, the man from Port Bible College, was totally opposed to this stuff. So isn't that interesting? Here are men who've come through the revival, come out of it, have different experiences, and both say one is right, one is wrong. So I found that incredibly interesting, another characteristic. The third characteristic of the 04 revival is this. The meetings had no leaders. They were leaderless. And for credit, we've got to give it to Evan Roberts. I mentioned how he often would go into the pulpit and sit there and start crying. He said he didn't want to be seen as the leader. Uh, and he never did. It was people who tried to make him the leader. Uh, and so there was, there was no leading at all. So people would just kind of gather in chapels and start singing. And then there'd be a verse and some more singing, an exhortation, a testament, a bit more singing. And then if he felt he should do it, Evan Roberts then gave his exhortations and maybe one or two other exhortations and then the kind of meetings carried on and that's how they were. Now I mentioned when it came to people like W.W. W. Lewis and, uh, and Dr. Kerry Evans and uh, R.B. Jones and people of that nature, they were more structured and they didn't mind the singing and testifying and praying but then it was, okay, we've had enough of that now, let's open God's word. But you never had that from Evan Roberts. A man called W.T. Stead you may have heard of W.T. Stead. If you go to Darlington, I think there's a pub either with his name on. I went in doing some historical research. Believe me. <laughs> if ever I'm seen on a CCTV camera coming out of Darlington pub, I was looking for something to do with W.T. Stead. He went down on the Titanic. But he was a big newspaper editor, writer, journalist. He got heavily involved with, with William Booth. I believe that W.T. Stead was a believer. He came down to, to kind of sympathize with Evan Roberts and uh, he wrote an article after attending quite a lot of meetings. He said, the most extraordinary thing about the meetings which I attended was the extent to which they were absolutely without any human direction or leadership. We must obey the Spirit, is the watchword of Evan Roberts, and he is as obedient as the humblest of his followers. The meetings open. And after any amount of preliminary singing, while the congregation is assembling, by the reading of a chapter or a psalm, then it's go as you please for two hours or more. And the amazing thing is that it does go and does not get entangled in what might seem confusion. 
three-fourths of the meeting consists of singing. No one uses a hymn book. No one gives out a hymn. The last person to control the meeting in any way is Evan Roberts. People pray, sing, give testimonies, exhort as the Spirit moves. As a student of psychology of crowds, I've seen nothing like it. You feel that the thousand or fifteen hundred people before you have become merged into one myriad-headed but single-souled personality. How interesting. Sometimes people would try and preach. You know how it is when something happens, people come, oh, I'm going to get involved in this. And when people thought that they were saying too much for too long, people just broke out in the song. I'm going, there's no move here. <laughs> and how interesting that is, really, yes. Therefore, the meetings ended when they ended. And when folks said, that said, it's time to go home, we'll just go home. So I find that incredibly interesting. Another characteristic is this, there was a distinctive lack of preaching. A distinctive lack of preaching. And I think probably this is the undoing of the 1904 revival. Uh... Some ministers boasted that during the, the revival, which probably ran, technically speaking, you know, six months, but the afterglow was about 14 months altogether, there were some ministers who boasted they'd never preached for 12 months. There are some 21st century ministers who would long for that kind of stuff to come. You know, they're in team ministry, they preach once a month, uh, and think that's hard work. Uh, and uh, Tabernacle in Penarth, which is still going and going very well indeed, for two months they had no preaching. Just singing, testimony, singing, prayer, and that was it. Uh, and that's how it went. So there was very little preaching from people like Evan Roberts. The others were very kind of committed to preaching. Here's another characteristic. Evan Roberts used lots of women which made people question him. Now, we've got to be very careful here. Nothing has ever been raised. And we live in a culture where folk go, hang on a minute. You know, there must be something there. But he, he, he traveled everywhere with these young girls. I say young girls, late teens, early twenties. Because they were just full of the enthusiasm of the Lord. And uh, there's a whole list of, of women who, I just put up one or two pictures there. There's actually a book on the women of the O4 revival. A very interesting book. And I thought we were saying, you know, this is, this is, and don't forget, we're going back over a hundred years. This is not helpful, having a young man travel with all these young girls. You know, it, it's, it's not helpful. Not that thought we're accusing him of anything, and I'm not for one second trying to sow a seed of doubt. But, but he kind of had all these women with him who were doing lots of singing, even doing lots of exhorting. Some even did a little bit of preaching when, when they could. And uh, hmm, that was another characteristic. The other men the great preachers of the, the 1904 revival, did not use young women. They, uh, you know, every now and then maybe a song, but would never travel with them and have them heavily involved. So those are some kind of general characteristics of what was going on. Now let's come to what I've called the criticisms. At first, everybody accepted the revival as good news. You know, you can understand why. You know, if you're in a dead church and suddenly it's full and there's life and, and young people and, and people getting converted. But then after a while, after a few weeks, drops of criticism began to appear in the media 
And uh, some ministers then began to ask questions. John McNeil, uh, he was a Scottish evangelist. I was telling my congregation the other day, he's buried in the same cemetery of James Paraffin Young. The man who discovered paraffin was a believer. I've told you that before, haven't I? And uh, he used a lot of his profits from discovering paraffin to encourage a friend of his who was on the mission field. You may have heard of him, some small missionary. I think it was called David Livingston. So burn your lamp. The light may shine brighter in Africa. Yes. Anyway, he's in this, that's irrelevant. He's in the same cemetery as, uh, as James Paraffin. John McNeil was a very passionate Scottish preacher. He says, they call the 1904 revival debauched emotionalism. But if it is so, O oh Lord, may we be sober no more. So some folks said, this is absolutely wonderful. I mean, I don't care what you say, it's wonderful. In the 1859, a little ditty was written, and uh, it reappeared in the 1904 revival. It goes like this. The foolish world and proudly sage think I am drunk and mad with rage. Drunk? Doubtless. Yes, I'm drunk and odd, but drunken with the wine of God. Hmm. The biggest criticism came from a man called the Reverend Peter Price. How about this? The Western Mail is, is, a, is a broadsheet. He filled two pages of the Western Mail with his criticisms of the 1904 revival. But here's where the rubber hits the road. He was an evangelical. And uh, he pastored a church of 600. Now, when, you've pastored, when you pastor a church of 600, you have more clout than if you're pastoring 25 in a back room. So here's a man who's pastoring a church of 600. And he said, I don't know what all this fuss is about. He said, we're seeing people come to the Lord on a regular basis in our church. So, so what's all this hype about? And uh, he had some wonderful organists uh, leading the worship or leading the singing in his church. Well-known men like, like Harry Evans and, uh, and Yayan Gwilt, if you know anything about Welsh hymnody. You would cut your right arm off to have those people kind of leading your, your kind of music. So here's a church up in Dowlice, just outside Merthyr Tydfil. 600 people, folk are getting saved, and a minister preaching the gospel, and he goes, what's all this? What's all this about? Uh, and, and his criticisms are very interesting. He said, all these physical manifestations and gross exhibitionism detract from the gospel. And there was some exhibitionism, without any doubt at all. He said, Roberts keeps getting into the pulpit and saying, I'll only move when I'm under the influence of the Spirit. Where does that leave us? Do I not preach under the influence of the Spirit? Who does he think he is that he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? He once was in the pulpit with Evan Roberts and he singled a man out and he said, Sir, you are damned and beyond redemption. And Peter Price said, Is that what a gospel preacher should do? To damn someone from the pulpit? Who has the authority to say that someone is beyond redemption? And he said, this is, this is not the work of a man of God. And then P Peter Price said, this business of sitting in the pulpit or disappearing for days. Who does he think he is? He said, it's just, it's just theatrics. He said, I don't do that. We don't do that, but he does it and gets away with it. He said, that's not the move of a man of God. We're told to go into the world and to preach the good news. Not this guessing game, you know, like when you watch a cormorant go under the water. 
you play that game? Where's it going to come up next? You don't? You don't know how to live. <laughs> we go to Fleetwood on the front and go, Lord, send a cormorant. Yes! And, and people going, well, okay, he's disappeared in Neath. Where's he going to turn up? Oh, Martha! Oh, is it? Oh, he's not saying anything. Peter Price said, this is a terrible way for an evangelist and a preacher of Christ to behave. And also he said his, his preaching is non-existent. So, I have to say, a lot of what he said was true, but he overplayed his hand, and people turned on Peter Price and uh, had a very terrible time from many people who had been saved or who were actually in the heart of the revival. Forbes Winslow was a leading English psychiatrist in England at that time, and he was heavily involved in the Jack the Ripper case. That's how he really sort of shot to fame. Forbes Winslow, having gone to several meetings and analysed Evan Roberts at work, wrote, I would have men like Evan Roberts locked up as common felons and their meetings prohibited, like those of socialists and anarchists, as being dangerous to the public. I dread to think what some psychiatrist would say if he came to a few conferences. <laughs> Crackpots I have known. Okay, sorry. Uh, I would like to make some personal assessments, if I can, having looked at this subject for many, many years. I do not claim to be an authority, but having sort of lived in the land for 15 years and, and thought about it specifically over these, these past uh, 12 months. I personally would say that, yes, singing played a large part in the revival and there is nothing wrong with singing. But when the revival stopped, the singing continued. And how interesting that long before the English were singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which I say even as an Englishman, broaden your repertoire, please. Long before the English were singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, the Welsh had their hymns and arias at rugby matches. And isn't it interesting, you could go to a rugby match and hear some Welsh hymns sung. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from, from, from the Old Revival. And uh, my grandmother used to listen to a Welsh hymn singing program on, on Radio Cymru called Candiatha Akusaga. Okay. My, sorry, my great-grandfather, she's now dead. My grandmother used to listen to it, and she's dead. My father used to listen to it, and he's dead. Guess what I do? <laughs> Yep. My life is so structured. Every Sunday at half past four, while I'm unloading the dishwasher from Sunday's dinner, I have the half past four hymn singing on. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's dreadful. And I have probably a hundred cassettes at home, 45 minutes, just filled with quality singing, the like of which you've probably never heard. Hymn tunes and hymns that are unknown to many, many people, incredibly evocative, many are in the minor key, but that is not salvation. Now we find ourselves in a very interesting situation where a number of people have told me I mean, music is the key to reaching people, and music gets right into your heart. I mean, we all put the radio on in the car, we've all got lots of CDs, I thank God for music, wouldn't life? You know, I sometimes say to my wife, you know, a hundred years ago, 
I don't know about you, Jane, but I'd probably be a scrubber at the bottom end of life. I'd never hear this stuff. But now we turn on the radio and we hear stuff that people only in the upper echelons of life heard in, in a previous generation. It's there at a fingertip. But that is not revival. Revival is God moving and putting music in your heart. And singing the songs of revival is not revival. And so, even now at the National Eisteddfod in, in, in Wales every year, which is full of Welsh culture, how does the National Eisteddfod always start? On the Sunday evening, they have a gamanva. For two hours, with people from the area to sing hymns. It's, it's bizarre. Thinking, you don't believe the stuff you're singing, but you sing it. So that's the kind of first observation I would make. Secondly, I, I, I think that Evan Roberts was uh, totally wrong in his lack of preaching. Now, sometimes we go the other way and people just need exhorting. And having preached for 35 years, I, I find it incredibly challenging. And you know, I'm glad I wasn't on the panel last night. You know, mistakes I have made. Uh, Boy, I've made some massive ones as a pastor. And sometimes as a pastor, I have felt that all the people need is an exhortation. Rather than dragging through Daniel chapter 9. And that's one of the drawbacks of expository preaching. Don't get me wrong. I preached through 55 books of the Bible. Uh, and my people know about it over the years. And, and the church has been very kind to allow me do that kind of stuff. But sometimes you get so locked into series, you think, I've got to finish this series before Easter because Easter's coming in. And so, right, whether you like it or not, you're having Daniel chapter 9, and next week it's Daniel chapter 10, you know, and folk going, <laughs> And sometimes all the people need is an exhortation from the Lord. That kind of warm word that just quickens their spirit. And, 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 and as much as I'm committed to expository preaching, believe me, I am, there's also a time to say, let's just exhort one another in the things of God. And so, for credit to Evan Roberts, he understood that. But the trouble is, he, you, can't, you can't build your church on exhortations. You've also got to build the church on, on the truth. And how does faith come by hearing? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. James says you were born again by that word of truth that kind of got into your heart. And uh, we need to understand this. And as, and as leaders, we have to realize... There's a time to systematically expound God's word, but there are sometimes occasions when you've just got to say, I'm here just to exhort you. Remember, uh, I had a series, and we're going through a series, and uh, I just got into the pulpit, and a note was given me to say that one of my deacons, age 50, had just died. And it's there, you think. And there's 200 people in front of you. You think, do I, do I say anything or do I not? I thought, no, we're the family of God. So I just said to the congregation, you've seen the note that I've been given. And uh, I won't mention the man's name. I said, he's just died. And I said, I'm not here to preach this morning. Just here to just bring some comfort from the word of God. Just brought one or two words of hope and of comfort. It just so happened we were gathering around the Lord's table that day. I said, let's just come to the table. Let's just come to the table. There would have been a time... You know, when you're a young man thinking, sorry folks, the series must carry on. We'll just pray for our widow. Right, let's, no, no, no. 
there's a time to exhort people. And just say, Lord, may I be sensitive to, to the people's needs. But please do not think I'm not committed to the expanding of God's word. Because God's word also does comfort us. Thirdly, I would say the meetings, from what I understand, were incredibly emotionally charged. And uh, people have done PhDs on crowd psychology. Crowds are frightening things. You will do things in a crowd that you will not do on your own. Don't believe me? You come to Accrington Stanley with me. (laughs) Well, there were 3,000 last time I was there. I don't know, you kind of... Even as a Christian, as a Christian minister, you kind of, I'm sat there with my wife and she's a restraint. And uh, you, you hear people kind of, ref, go and suspect savers, go on. You know, and then everyone's shouting, go to spec savers, you know. I, I think, oh, hang on, man, I'm a Christian minister. I mean, no, I don't. <laughs> and crowds kind of get, you get pulled into crowd mentality. I'm just making an illustration. And uh, sometimes even in, even in a Christian crowd, we can get pulled into doing things that in reality think, I feel quite uncomfortable doing this. In fact, I'm not all that sure. I like singing these kind of words. But everyone else is singing. It must be okay. And we have to be very careful about our emotions. Very careful. And the question is this. Would I do this at 11 o'clock on a wet Monday morning? And it's, I, I said this carefully. I, I love singing. I really, really do. And, but sometimes... Do we have to sing it five times to the Lord? Do you think the Lord says, I heard it the first time, David. (laughs) And I've said this before. If and can it be tires me out, do you think the Lord gets tired of it? Oh, not and can it be again. And by the way, have you noticed we're singing and can it be wrong anyway? The hymn was written to sing quietly. But we scream it. And can it be? That's not. And when people sing like that, they've misunderstood the hymn. How does, how does Charles Wesley write? And can it be that I, that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain? For me who him to death pursued? Oh, amazing love. I'm amazed. I'm stunned. I'm almost speechless. And then it kind of builds up to crescendo. But the trouble is, we start up there. And by the time we get to verse 5, we're stripping the varnish off the ceiling. And by the way, why do meetings have to go on so long? Why do these meetings have to go on until after midnight? As if, wow, the longer it goes on, the more spiritual it is. And when it comes to preaching too, and you know, sometimes my wife says to me, David, you should have quit ten minutes ago. When you've struck oil, stop boring. And uh, why do we have to have very, very long meetings? As if it's more spiritual. Uh, and it was an interesting criticism. Fourth thing to say is that some meetings became very chaotic and got out of control. And uh, there's no getting away from that. Sometimes... Things went very, very well. On, on other occasions, they did get out of control and needed a leader. And, and while it's good to be open for God to move in our midst, 
there is nothing wrong in someone saying, but I'm just going to gently guide this. Otherwise, this is going to get totally out of, of control. To show how out of control things got, which takes your breath away, I have a man in my church, and he's been unwell recently, and he's a Welshman, and uh, it wasn't right to ask him because he's just recovering from, from a very bad dose of flu. He has photographs that were produced just weeks after the revival started where Evan Roberts went into a photographic studio to have photographs of himself taken to put on a postcard to hand out. And then he took the girls in. So, you know, you went to his meetings. You, you may think, this is outrageous. I'm telling you the truth. Uh, and you had photographs of Evan Roberts uh, and photographs of all the girls going, Evan, how can you do this? The others didn't do it. And have we not come across that even in the 21st century of those who have a hidden foot washing ministry? But they walk around with their outer robe off and they have a towel in their hand and it's always Christy because the Lord always deserves the best. And kind of, I'm ever so humble. My job is washing people's feet. We all can see it. We have to be very, very careful that we don't start drawing attention to ourselves. Here's the fifth thing I would say. He, he did not organize his converts. He preached, so a great move of God. There'll always be dross in that, but some people were gloriously converted. He never went back to pen them. It was on to the next meeting, and to the next meeting, and to the next meeting. And the great thing about R.B. Jones that I have to take my hat off for is that he said, we've got to pen these people. Hence the reason why he started a Bible college uh, and he went around writing courses so that he could send out to new converts, read the Bible, get into this, get into that. He organized weekends, come, come, come to Porth for Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, and we'll try and instruct you in the things of God. Evan Roberts did nothing of that. And what is very, very sad is that many of these converts went back to churches that couldn't cope. So guess what they had? Most Presbyterian churches, because they couldn't cope, invented what were called pleasant evenings. What made up a pleasant evening? Games, singing, food, and epilogue. Do you recognize the pattern? This is how we keep new converts. Let's play some nice games. Let's have some singing. Let's have some food. Then we'll have a little devotional word and we'll go home. There was no instruction. Sixthly, as soon as the revival stopped, the theological nonsense began to come to the surface. Have you heard of A.T. Pearson? A.T. Pearson, he went down to Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He was the wrong man for the church, but anyway, A.T. Pearson, a wonderful man, you know, great, great desire to reach the lost. Uh, he made an announcement. He said, I believe that the 1904 revival is the harbinger for the second coming. March 1905. He went further. The Lord Jesus is going to come back between 1910 and 1915. It's amazing, isn't it? This is the man who followed Spurgeon. Where's that come from, Mr. Pearson? The smart cookie died in 1911. <laughs> so people forgot what he said. And so there were people going, oh, this is the harboring of the second coming. Wonderful. Jesus is coming. Well, folk had been saying that for years. And one day he will come. And so there was that. 
And then there was a man called Rita Harris. These are good people. Rita Harris was not converted through the 1904 revival. Just read his uh, biography, a most moving account of how this man became a Christian down in, down in Argentina. But uh, he, he designed railways. A fantastic mind. But he had a heart for the things of God. Rita Harris got connected to George Jeffries, who was converted in the revival. And out of this came British Israelite teaching. And so there were people saying, oh, we're now one of the lost tribes. And Jesus is now coming. And then the Keswick teaching began to rear its head with people like F.B. Mayer, R.B. Jones, and then our beloved Jesse Penn Lewis, who was big into Keswick. And you know the whole kind of Keswick teaching in terms of holiness, which is thing in of itself. R.B. Jones then at his Bible school began to teach dispensationalism. You can imagine you're a hard living, cursing, swearing, drinking, coal miner. You get converted. And within months, you go along to one of these meetings and you're being told that we're one of the lost tribes of Israel, that Jesus is coming. This is how you understand holiness. And by the way, there's such a thing called dispensationalism. And these folk are going, what on earth is this? An African pastor once said to me, what Africa needs is Jesus. Sadly, what the West has brought to Africa is John Calvin and Jacob Arminius. And he said, I meet people who are arguing, are you Calvinistic or Arminian? And he said, they have no clue what they're talking about. We need Jesus. And here's another thing. There was a large falling away. There's no denying that. There was a touch of the Holy Spirit out in America and out in Canada. And R.B. Jones went out initially and was thrilled by what happened. He went back several years later and was stunned at how the people didn't want to receive him. A man from the Times came down to Wales eight years after the revival to do a report on it. Here is the Times newspaper. It's only nine years since this country was in the throes of a wonderful religious revival and shaken with the tempest of spiritual emotionalism. A strangely different spirit prevails today. The old theology and all it stood for is rapidly losing its hold on the mind of young Wales. The fall in church attendance, the marked decrease in voluntary contributions and the shrill note of defiance and criticism in the writings of young men, all this indicates that a fundamental change is proceeding and no one can predict the issue. And that was just nine, eight to nine years after the revival. Fascinating. I could say a lot more about that. Then there's Evan Roberts himself. The revival, technically speaking, was over in the autumn of 1905. It started in November 1904. And, and technically speaking, came to a close at the end of autumn 1905. Things began to cool down. By this time, he was shattered. How do you feel after three days at the FUE conference? <laughs> shattered. Okay, shattered. Imagine living in the spiritual atmosphere of having meetings five or six hours every night. Preaching here, preaching there. You know, people after you and, and all that kind of stuff. 
He was totally broken. So what happened? He withdrew. And after the revival ceased in 1905, he went to live in Leicester. Who did he go and live with? Mr. and Mrs. Jesse Penn Lewis. Uh, and he went to live. Uh, and it's said that for 12 months, he could, he could hardly walk or function properly. It had so broken his body. And uh, again, I find myself thinking, there's a lot of human foolishness here. Is this really how God works? Yeah, we hear people saying, oh, I want to burn out for Jesus. Well, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. You just be careful what it means to burn out for Jesus. Right? If you want to drop dead at 45 with a heart attack and leave behind a wife and three children, and folks say, what a great Christian evangelist, I think that's foolishness. You've got a wife and children to look after. We've got to be sensible in these things. Maybe if this man was married and had children, he would see things slightly differently. The woman he stopped with, Mrs. Jessie Penn Lewis, began to write lots of books. And if you go into a second-hand bookshop, you'll see, of a Christian bookshop, you'll see lots of kind of books by Jessie Penn Lewis. She got in all to this spiritual stuff, spiritual warfare. There were demons everywhere. And, and she, you know, so sometimes these things come around. You know, what goes around comes around. And she was, she was into all this stuff. That this, this is demonic here. And the devil's having a play here. He bought into this kind of stuff. For a very short period of time, Evan Roberts came back to Lucker to try and revive things again. But it was, it, was, it was gone. There was nothing there at all. And the only people who came back were those who came back for a little bit of nostalgia. So what happened? In the 1920s, he went to live in Brighton. And after a short time in Brighton, he came back to Cardiff. And he died in Cardiff on the 29th of January, 1951. In all the books that I've read, and I lived in Cardiff for a while, I know people who've lived in Cardiff all their life, who are like a walking encyclopedia on church life in Cardiff, nobody has told me in all my years of being alive where Evan Roberts ever worshipped in Cardiff. And nobody can ever tell you what happened to him. He just dropped off the face of the earth. And there's a photograph on the board, which is the last picture that we have of him. Uh, when he died, he was brought back to Lucker and he was buried behind the chapel. But no one can say, oh, he was here, he was here. No one knows where he was. I've heard many rumors that I didn't want to put into your mind in case it sort of makes you pass them on as truth. But he was nowhere. So here's a man who disappears for 30 years. And you then ask questions. Hang on a minute, Lord. It's all right having an intense 14 months, but what about the next 30 years? You know, where's the consistency? I would personally say, if I put my head on the block, that I think he was a very unstable man. A very unstable man who did things by, not halves, he gave it everything he ever had. I am not doubting the spiritual experiences he had. I am not doubting what, what God did through him. But he was a very weak vessel and he needed someone to take him in hand. You see, we need to realize as evangelists, we are not the gospel. The gospel is outside of us. And we are those who proclaim the Savior outside of us. And by the way, we are not indispensable. And I dread to think what would happen if I found myself in Evan Roberts' shoes, the weakness and the cracks that would show up in me. 
And so, yes, God did use him. But uh, thank God the other men were a lot more stable. A lot more stable. Uh, Someone gave me the autobiography of Dr. Kerry Evans. Dr. Kerry Evans was the mystic of the revival. He was an educated man. He was a doctor. Uh, He was a gentle preacher. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones doing incredibly well. And he said, uh, uh, Dr. Evans, I'd love you to write your life story. And, And I read it about six months ago. I was blown away. Not a crazy man. A sensible, saved, born-again man. And he said, in the 1904 revival, God met me. He said, I can't explain it. He said, every day when I had my quiet time, the Lord came in to my study. No matter how tired I was, he said, he would renew me, and I'd get up a new man and preach with power. He said, that went on for nearly 20 years he said, I don't understand it. And sometimes he said, I'd, I'd go very tired and I'd come out so fresh. Sometimes I'd be very angry about what had been happening in my life and God ministered into my heart. And then he said, one day it all stopped. And I can't explain why. What is interesting, in all my reading, and I've lost count how much I've read and, and looked into other people's research, I've only found one occasion where Evan Roberts shared the pulpit with the other leaders of the revival. He was a lone ranger. It's if the other men were a little bit... You're a bit too wacky for us. Now, God's kingdom can cope with wacky people. How do I know? (laughs) Does someone say... We're all mavericks. And the kingdom of God is big enough for mavericks. The problem is when some wacky people get hold of the microphone and start leading the church down a certain road. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Now the legacy. I mean, that's the fifth thing. There's so much to say about the legacy. I could be here all morning, but I'm not going to be here all morning. Let me just give you five little facts about the legacy, which I think you'll find very interesting. One man in South Wales who was greatly influenced by the 1904 revival was a man called Rhys Howells. And and Rhys Howells built Swansea Bible College. And uh, I had the privilege of meeting his son, Samuel Howells. Wow. And he was an interesting man. They've gone and the whole Bible College has changed. Going back to Swansea Bible College, when I was there in the 80s, not, I, wasn't in, I lived in Swansea, and uh, I was allowed permission to go in and borrow books from the library. I wish now I'd nicked them, because <laughs> I don't know where they've all gone, but there's some wonderful, wonderful books. It was like, it was like going back into the Old Testament. They had, they had altars and stones all around with Jehovah Jireh, you know, Jehovah Shammah. It's kind of incredible. And all the services were relayed on loudspeaker. So there was a man who was ill, and I went to visit him in the hospital. There he is, feeling so ill in the college hospital. They were having a service. Even that was relayed. I thought, give the man a break. Many, many good people passed through the Swansea Bible College. That was a touch of the 1904 revival. 
in my stag were two brothers, George and Stephen. And they got converted in the 04 revival. George and Stephen Jeffries, the Jeffrey brothers, the Pentecostal church. No getting away from them. They were powerful men. And if you want to hear Stephen Jeffries preach, go onto YouTube. And you can hear very Welsh accent. But very powerful, very passionate. And a man in my second church, he said, my mother as a child dragged me to hear Stephen Jeffries preach. Boy, he was powerful. He said, I saw people healed. I saw people saved. And as a young boy, he said, I experienced, he said, the air David was like electricity. It was powerful. You can't deny that these men knew a touch of God. Down in uh, Penigros, near to Cross Hands, just off the M4, is where the, the Apostolic Church was born. Daniel Williams was converted on Christmas Day. He went to church on Christmas Day, which is a rarity these days. He went to church on Christmas Day and he got converted. And he was so full of life, the church didn't know what to do with him. So he started his own denomination, the Apostolic Church. And so, so really, Elim Pentecostal, okay, AOG, also the Apostolic Church, all came out of, technically speaking, the 1904 revival. In Russia, a man called William Fetter was reading about the 1904 revival. And uh, he said, Lord, if you can do it in Wales, would you please do it here? He was so passionate about this, he travelled from Russia to Wales to experience it, to then go back to say to people, God has, God has moved powerfully. I've seen it. Let's pray that God may move here. God began to move there in Russia. Through his toing and froing from Russia to this country, he visited a place called Bournemouth. And a home was opened called Slavanka. And some of you may have heard of Slavanka. Okay, uh, it's now gone. But there were connections with Slavanka, with Russia, through Wales at the 1904 revival. Lots of Welsh people, here's the final thing, I've got so much to say, but I'll leave it here. Lots of Welsh people went to Patagonia. And uh, Patagonia is in Argentina. And uh, because things were so tough in Wales, many people emigrated. And if you go to Patagonia today, you'll meet people who speak Welsh. There are towns in Patagonia, in South America, named after towns in Wales. There are Welsh chapels. In Patagonia, people were receiving sort of letters and newspapers every week. And suddenly, oh, revivals come to the homeland. So after, after the evening services, deacons were standing up in chapels reading extracts from the Western Mail. And folk got saved. Hallelujah. Some got so fired up. They said, we can't keep this among the Welsh in Patagonia. We've got to go to the Argentinians. We've got to share the gospel with them. And so a team of Welsh converted people went out from Patagonia into Argentina to preach the gospel. One of the converts was a man called Mr. Palau. who had a son called Louis, or Louis Palau. Now, I could go right around the world telling you, I pastor a church in Inskip, in, uh, in Lancashire, 
It's near to Blackpool, but I don't tell anyone that. I say we're on the edge of the Lake District. (laughs) When I lived in Swindon, I never told people I really lived in Swindon. I said we live on the edge of the Cotswolds. (laughs) The chapel that I pastor, we have a book that was written 100 years ago charting uh, kind of what was happening uh, in the history of the church in its early days. And you know, reading footnotes that were added to that book afterwards, you know, even the 1904 revival touched the church that I pastor. When people in Inskip heard what God was doing in Wales, they said, Lord, bring it here. And 1904-05 saw a rise in conversions and a rise in membership, even in the countryside. Well, there we are, 1904, 1905, 2020. Interesting stuff, isn't it? I haven't got all the answers, because who can understand God? Who can understand God? Whether he ever sends revival to this country or not, I really don't know. Campbell Morgan said, we cannot bring the wind, but we can make sure that our sail is up and facing in the right direction. And I just say, Lord, may my life be in the right direction that if the wind blows, at least you can blow through me. And if he does, remember this lecture and say, Lord, thank God for Evan Roberts and for all the bad stuff. May I never make those kinds of mistakes. But God, hallelujah, is even bigger than broken, messed up, servants of God wow let's pray together Father you never ask us to explain you like Moses we take the shoes off our feet and we worship you like John we fall down conscious we're in the presence of a holy God like Job we put our hands over our mouths Unlike the crowd in glory, we sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Father, if we could understand these things, it would be easy. Thank you that we have a God who is incomprehensible. But Father, it it makes us treat you carefully and with deep respect. And we thank you for all that is past. But we trust you for all that is to come. Lord, I trust these three talks haven't depressed us, but just made us spiritually, in the right sense of the word, proud of our heritage, that this is our God. And Father, even if you never pour out your spirit again on this country, we've got heaven to look forward to. And what is heaven but revival for the whole of eternity with the Lord Jesus at the center? Father, where I've been wrong or misleading or harsh, please have mercy. But what has been true, use it for the glory of your name. Through Christ, our lovely Savior. Amen. Amen.